This week's episode is brought to you by Swords of Northshire, makers of fine custom swords. They've got a fantastic array of pre-made swords as well as excellent options for customizing your own, and I know that from experience because they've worked with me to customize my very own katana. I can't show it to you yet, unfortunately. I'm a big guy, you see, and even when I did Iido, I had a hard time finding a sword that was the right size for me. So they are custom making a longer than normal blade for me out of 1095 steel to suit my stature. And really, isn't it that kind of dedication to getting it right that you look for in your sword makers? Once it's here, don't worry, I'll update you and there will be photos. In the meantime, go to isaacmeyer.net slash swords to learn more about Swords of Northshire and to check them out for yourself. That's isaacmeyer.net slash swords. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 220, Minamata, part 2. As the 1960s began and Japan entered into a new age of high growth that would see it vault from war-torn and impoverished to the world's second strongest economy, the people of Minamata could rest easy. They'd been told, after all, that their largest employer, Chiso, had accidentally released pollutants into Minamata Bay, which had contaminated the local fish, but the problem had been fixed. A new filtering system was in place, no more contaminants were going to get released, the problem was solved. Except, of course, that it was not. The filtering system did not work, despite Chiso's claims to the contrary, and just how uncontained the problem was really became very clear when another outbreak of the Minamata disease took place this time not in Minamata, but on the other side of Japan. The second round of Minamata disease broke out in Niigata, on the other side of Japan on the coast of Honshu. Specifically, another major industrial chemical firm, Showa Denko, had a factory in Niigata Prefecture, in a small village called Kanose. Just like Chiso, this company was engaged in manufacturing acetaldehyde for use in producing plastics, and the Showa Denko factory in Kanose used the exact same chemical process that the Chiso factory in Minamata did. In the case of Kanose, the wastewater which contained methylmercury byproducts was dumped into the Agano River, a local river which flowed into the Sea of Japan. Along the way, the methylmercury contaminated the food chain. It got into the marine wildlife and from there into birds and land mammals that ate fish out of the river, and before long, the fish contaminated humans as well. As early as 1964, symptoms of mercury poisoning were visible in the local wildlife. By 1965, cases were being reported up and down the Agano River. By April 1965, a 55-year-old man named Hoshiyama Komatsu was hospitalized at the Niigata University Hospital. The attending physician, Hirota Koichi, took note of his symptoms. Physical impairment, specifically the inability to walk in a straight line, a sensation of tingling all over the body, difficulty speaking, badly impaired vision, Dr. Hirota noted that these seemed like symptoms of mercury poisoning, so he did a test on his patient's hair. The hair would contain mercury at elevated levels, if Hirota's guess was right. 
what he found was mercury levels of 763 parts per million. By comparison from what I've been able to find, a healthy, normal amount is in the high single or low double digits. By June 1965, seven other poisoning cases had come in. Two of these people had died. Eventually, Niigata Prefecture's government would recognize 702 cases of methylmercury poisoning, what became known as Niigata-Minamata disease, but it's likely the actual number is much higher. To be recognized by the prefecture as having the disease entitles someone to financial support from the prefectural government and from Showa Denko, so the application process has gotten more rigorous over time, in part, some have argued, so that the prefecture and the corporation don't have to pay out as much. The team of doctors handling the patients first tried to leak their suspicions about industrial mercury poisoning to a local paper, the Akahata actually, the newspaper of the Communist Party, but ultimately decided not to rely on anonymous leaks and instead to take their findings public themselves. By August, research teams were sweeping the Agano River and testing communities that lived alongside it. The results of these tests convinced the Niigata University research team that the culprit behind the contamination was some form of industrial process that was releasing methylmercury, which was in turn contaminating local fish, which was being consumed by local people. But where was the methylmercury coming from? There were three other factories in the area other than the Showadenko one which made use of mercury in their industrial processes, but they were tested and ruled out. The only other factory that could possibly be involved was the Showadenko one in Kanose, but that was almost 50 kilometers upstream from some of the poisoning cases. For many government regulators, that suggested there was no way the Kanose plant could be involved. Showadenko, for its part, fought hard against the suggestion that its Kanose plant was contaminating the river. It cast about for alternative theories in an attempt to discredit the idea that industrial pollution was the issue here. Their biggest go-to was arguing that the contamination was the result of the 1964 Niigata earthquake, and that storehouses full of agricultural chemicals had been damaged in the quake and were releasing those chemicals into the river. This was Showadenko's defense when it was sued by sufferers of Niigata Minamata disease in 1967. Nobody had been quick to sue Chiso and Minamata. Minamata was, after all, a Chiso company town. However, Showa Denko's industrial poisoning had spread well beyond the village of Kanose itself, and folks kilometers away from Kanose with no ties to the aforementioned company were not nearly so gun-shy about launching a lawsuit against the people responsible for their problems. The first lawsuit would take until 1971 to conclude, but early on in the trial the news came out that the scientists responsible for advancing Showa Denko's agricultural chemical spill theory about the source of the poisoning had business ties to the company. That destroyed the theory's credibility and was enough for the national government to step in, finally, and investigate the Kenose plant. They found, lo and behold, that the river plants near the factory had extremely elevated levels of mercury in them. And this, finally, was enough to get some measure of justice. Showa Denko lost in court in 1971, and had to pay for its negligence. However, the extent of the damage the poisoning caused, and thus the scope of the payouts, were limited by a reluctance to report on the part of the affected, and by government recalcitrants to do a full epidemiological investigation of the area. 
on the part of those affected in Niigata, there was a lot of stigma attached to the disease. Older superstitious ideas about the disease being a type of Tatari, an ancestral curse for the mistakes of past generations of a family, certainly lingered on in the 1960s, but beyond this, there were other prejudices at play as well. Despite government assurances that the disease was not contagious, indeed that it was not really a disease but poisoning, fears of being contaminated by the infected led to them being ostracized from some communities. It was hard for Minamata sufferers to find jobs or find partners, and women with the disease were pressured to get abortions. Even outside of these extreme cases, a lot of Minamata sufferers had to deal with the suggestions that they were faking for money or attention while also dealing with the protracted legal requirements to prove that their symptoms were actually mercury poisoning, requirements which, as we've discussed, got more stringent over time. It's unsurprising that some would just choose to ignore this whole issue and not report themselves as having been poisoned. One Kanose resident, Hatno Fumiko, whose husband used to work at the Kanose plant, Showa Denko eventually shut it down, put it this way to a Japan Times reporter. My hands shake, but I never ate much fish. People say some of them, people who report themselves as having the disease, are nothing but bounty hunters. I can't say for sure, but what I do know is that if they get certified, they can receive millions of yen. And then there were the simple difficulties with diagnosis. For starters, Showa Denko had likely been dumping mercury into the water since the early 30s, and had just about doubled the volume of dumped mercury in the early 50s. But at that point, Minamata disease itself had not been diagnosed, and as a result, doctors were less familiar with the symptoms of mercury poisoning, so a lot of cases went unreported. One victim of Niigata Minamata disease, Kanda Sakae, described his father as suffering some similar symptoms prior to his own death in the early 50s. But at the time, neither the Kandas nor the local doctors knew enough to clock the symptoms as mercury poisoning. The battle over Niigata Minamata disease that came out of the attempts to figure out just how many were affected and who was responsible was a long one. Lawsuits continued for a long time. So far as I've been able to find, the last one was settled in 2011, so not that long ago. For our purposes, though, the most important thing that I want to key in on was how the Niigata outbreak broke the story of the original Minamata outbreak wide open once again. Again, Minamata was a company town. Very few were willing to go against Chiso publicly to try and battle it out in court over the poisoning incidents. However, the Niigata outbreaks took place in communities with no ties to Showa Denko, so again nobody was hesitant to go after the company or its factories. And those lawsuits, in turn, put mercury poisoning into the public spotlight in a big way. So the fact that there was another factory using the same processes that Chiso was in Minamata, which had still been leaking methyl mercury, even though after the Minamata incident the government had mandated that these filtration systems be installed on every factory making acetaldehyde to protect the water supply, well, people in Minamata started to ask questions once this started getting covered in the national news. For years and years, they had been told that this filtration system installed in 1959 had fixed the issue, and Chiso had also agreed to settlements with anyone diagnosed with Minamata disease. Of course, those settlements included a proviso 
that those who took the settlement money would pursue no further damages against the company. The problem was solved, though, right? But here was another plant with the same design as Chiso's with its own filtration system that was still creating problems. That doesn't seem right to me. And then there was the fact that the doctors around the region in Minamata were still seeing cases that did look an awful lot like methylmercury poisoning. They just weren't reporting the cases as such because it couldn't be mercury poisoning. That issue had been fixed. It must be something else. And then there were the abnormally high rates of kids in the area diagnosed with cerebral palsy, which was developing into something that looked a lot like methylmercury poisoning as they aged. What was up with that? Probably nothing, after all. The placenta should filter out any poison in utero, and their mothers were fine. In fact, that's actually not how it works in this case. The placenta actually filters heavy metals like mercury out of the mother's bloodstream and into the baby's. And then the dam blew wide open on this whole thing in the summer of 1968, when the Japanese government finally admitted to the idea that there was a causal link between the Chiso plant, methylmercury, and Minamata disease, just like what was happening in Niigata. It finally endorsed publicly the idea that Chiso was behind the damage and that previous efforts to stop it had not been sufficient. What changed? Well, the ongoing court battles in Niigata had made it very hard to deny at least some link between acetaldehyde production and methylmercury poisoning, and that those newfangled filtration systems weren't worth diddly squat. Of course, the more cynically minded could also note that in May 1968, Chiso had ceased acetaldehyde production in Minamata, and therefore there was no more need on the part of the central government to protect Chiso anymore. After all, if the primary goal of the government bureaucracy in all of this was to protect Chiso in order to protect the economic benefits it brought, well, now there was no more need to protect Chiso, at least not in the realm of acetaldehyde. Of course, it's also important not to forget that the world was in a pretty different place in the 1960s than it had been in the 50s, and that the changing face of civil society had its own impact on how this case was being viewed. The environmental movement has a long history, dating back to 19th century ideas about conservationism, which saw, for example, the birth of state-run parks and wildlife protection laws, things like that. But in the post-war period, pollution and the harmful health effects of industry became one of the biggest issues of the age, not just in Japan, but around the world. After all, it's no coincidence that right as this whole drama was unfolding, a little book called Silent Spring was released in the USA in 1962 and translated into Japanese in 1964. Environmental pollution was a growing cause around the world, particularly among the global left, which in the 1960s was also growing stronger on the world. Left-wing movements in Japan in particular had started to coalesce around the idea of fighting environmental pollution from major companies. And there were plenty of those to choose from. In addition to the two instances of Minamata disease, there was also a growing movement for redress for the victims of Itai Itai disease, which we covered last time, as well as a fourth case of large-scale poisoning caused by air pollution from factories in Yokaichi in Mie Prefecture. Together, the four pollution diseases became a rallying cry among those who felt that human health and welfare was being sacrificed in the name of high-speed economic growth. The issue was far more in the public consciousness than it once had been. 
where there were a total of four large-scale, which is to say triple-digit attendance or more, pollution-related protests in Japan in 1961, there were well over 40 in 1969. It is also arguable, therefore, that the government did not think it would be as likely to succeed in sweeping the problems under the rug as it had been in the past. Certainly, when things did come to a head, the affected in Minamata now had allies outside of the community to call on in a way that just had not been true in the 1950s. Speaking of which, let's talk a little bit about how these events were received in Minamata. The families of those diagnosed in the 1950s had set up a civil society organization to help them organize, which was not so creatively named the Minamata Disease Patients Families Mutual Aid Society, I will just call it the Mutual Aid Society from this point forward. In those early days, the goal of the Mutual Aid Society was simply, well, to give mutual aid, to help families organize to help each other and to care for those family members so badly affected they could not care for themselves. There were MAS actions against Chiso in the 1950s. At one point, members even stormed the Chiso factories and smashed them up, and they were able to sustain a protest outside Chiso offices for months at a time, but these got little attention outside the immediate area, and the raid on Chiso in particular just got a lot of activists arrested. By the 1960s, though, the Mutual Aid Society was better organized and prepared for a long standoff with Chiso itself. And so once the Japanese government announced that Chiso was behind the poisoning and that poisoning was still going on, the Mutual Aid Society went to Chiso and essentially said, remember that old agreement you signed with victims in 1959? Well, we're going to revisit that now because it's clearly not sufficient. And thus began a year-long back-and-forth between Chiso, the Mutual Aid Society, and the National Ministry of Health and Welfare, which got involved in the dispute as an arbitrator, despite the highly justified concerns of many in the Mutual Aid Society that the Japanese government had not proven itself neutral or fair as an arbiter in these cases. The long and short of it was that Chiso offered the family's compensation. That compensation, in turn, led to something of a split in the Mutual Aid Society. You see, three factions began to emerge within this group. One wanted to accept the settlements and move on. One wanted to sue and pursue Chiso in court for a better settlement. The third wanted to cut the Ministry of Health and Welfare out and try to pressure Chiso directly while negotiating one-on-one -on -one for a better deal. The Mutual Aid Society didn't go anywhere because of this split. Each group which wanted to pursue a different option did end up going off and doing their own thing, with one group launching a lawsuit in 1969 and another staging sit-ins at Chiso offices and demanding new negotiations, but the group never stopped working together. The Mutual Aid Society still existed, and the direct action and lawsuit groups in particular shared strategies as they went after Chiso. They still had the same goal, after all, just different ideas of how to make it work, and different advantages at play, too. For starters, the legal group was mostly composed of people who had already been certified by doctors as having Minamata disease, meaning that the burden to prove in court that Chiso had harmed them was pretty low in that, you know, they already had methylmercury poisoning and Chiso had agreed they did. The direct negotiation group, meanwhile, had a large number of uncertified but suspected poisoning cases among its members, who would have had a harder time of things in court, 
but who could do a good job rallying public support against Chiso through direct actions. So the court group launched their lawsuit in 1969. In the first of many examples of outside aid, they were able to get the funds to hire lawyers, not from the prefectural government, which refused to help them against Chiso, but from the Japanese Communist Party, which donated time and money to help run the legal cases. This, by the by, is one of the reasons the JCP has always done well on a local level. It's very good about organizing with local issues and engaging with local organizations. A lawsuit against a major industrial company on this scale was not only unprecedented in the post-war era, but in all of 20th century Japanese history. And the JCP and other outside left-wing groups, from student organizations to labor unions, did a lot of work to publicize both the Minamata case and the other pollution cases, which were active at the same time. As a result, there was a lot of public pressure on the court system to deliver a verdict in favor of the Minamata residents. Conversely, there was very little in the way of time or openings for Chiso to try and spin the narrative in its own favor. Plus, you know, all the science backing up the claims of the Minamata residents they'd been poisoned by Chiso, which only got more damning as revelation after revelation came out about how much the government had done to tip the scales in favor of Chiso back in the 50s. The case did take a long time to advance. Chiso still had great lawyers, after all, and the Mutual Aid Society members wanted to build a pretty airtight case to ensure the company couldn't wriggle out of paying damages. So the wheels of justice ground forward, but pretty slowly. At the same time, the direct negotiation group put the pressure on Chiso, because they weren't actually just about negotiating. Direct action might be a better term, I think, because they really laid on the pressure not just in private negotiations, but in very public and high-profile acts against Chiso. For example, members of this wing of the Mutual Aid Society did things like buying up cheap Chiso stock and then sending members as shareholders to the 1970 Chiso shareholders meeting in Osaka. Over 1,000 Mutual Aid Society members and supporters entered the meeting and completely derailed it. Images of some members with clear facial deformities from muscle damage caused by methylmercury poisoning directly confronting Chiso executives made national headlines. Mutual Aid Society members also staged a massive sit-in at Chiso headquarters in Tokyo, which lasted 18 months and which again made national headlines. When the sit-in was attacked by Tokyo police and Chiso security trying to break it up, the resulting images of protesters being dragged away was so damaging both to the government and to Chiso's PR that they were forced to back off and the sit-in remained in place. A similar attempt to storm a Chiso plant in Chiba was rebuffed by the police, but again at the cost of creating a very public confrontation, which made headlines and did a lot to build up sympathy for the Mutual Aid Society cause. Back in Minamata, direct actions like a blockade of the Chiso plant by a fleet of fishing vessels from villages all around the Shirnui Sea served as a neat microcosm of the whole divide between the residents of the area and the company which had once been their savior and was now their poisoner. Chiso was utterly unable to get out from this constant barrage of pressure, and then in early 1973, it officially lost its lawsuit to the Mutual Aid Society. Shortly thereafter, Chiso caved in all the way, and agreed to extend the terms of their legal settlement to any certified sufferer of Minamata disease, even if they had not been a part of the lawsuit. 
The terms were, if you're wondering, the following. Any sufferer of Minamata disease who was certified by the government as such received somewhere between 16 and 18 million yen in a lump sum, depending on the severity of the case. Some rough conversion puts that at around a quarter million dollars today, plus a lifetime pension between 20 to 60,000 yen, again depending on the severity of the case. Again, some rough back-of-the-napkin math that's about 400 to 1,200 US dollars in today's currency. This was a huge victory for the Mutual Aid Society, and it was not an isolated one. We've already covered the lawsuit against Showadenko because of Niigata Minamata disease. Wins for the other plaintiffs in Big Four environmental poisoning cases were not far behind. In 1971, Mitsui lost a lawsuit that found it culpable for damages related to the cadmium poisoning that had caused Itai Itai disease, and in 1972, Showa Yokaichi Oil had a similar judgment levied against it for the air pollution that led to Yokaichi asthma. Beyond this, environmental concerns were finally being taken more seriously at the higher levels of government. In 1971, the Japanese government established a new bureaucratic agency, the Environment Agency, to help set national policies related to environmental protection and human health. To be fair, that agency designation marked this as a sort of Tier 2 bureaucracy, the Tier 1 groups are all named ministries and are more prestigious and influential. Still, this is a pretty big step, and only one year behind the founding of the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States. Plus, the Environment Agency was upgraded to the Ministry of the Environment in 2001, in the same set of bureaucratic reforms that saw the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, which had once tried to protect Chiso at the expense of the health of Minamata residents in the 50s, broken up. But that's not to say that these victories somehow fixed everything or anything like that. Environmental regulation continued to be a hot-button issue that received a lot of pushback through the rest of the high-growth era in Japan. Indeed, at one point, noted ultra-right conservative Ishihara Shintaro was actually the head of the Environment Agency, and he handled that about as you'd expect. Still, I think it's hard to call this anything other than a victory, even if it's not as complete as it could be. Then there's the people of Minamata themselves. The provisions of the Chiso Agreement stated that anyone who was later certified as a sufferer of Minamata disease would be entitled to the same restitution as someone who was part of the original settlement, and those certifications were handled by the Japanese government. But the government still wanted to protect Chiso as part of its economic strategy because, yes, if you're wondering, Chiso is still around, though they have since rebranded, not too originally, as Japan New Chiso. Proposed slogan, this time with 50% less poison. Anyway, as a result of this protection, pretty much no new Minamata victims were certified after about 1975. There was actually a second round of lawsuits against Chiso that ran well into the 1990s to get recognition and compensation for about 14,000 more unregistered victims of the disease. In the end, only about 8,000 got compensation, and at a lower rate than the 1973 agreement. The exact number of people ultimately affected by the methylmercury poisoning is hard to pin down because of how much work went into obfuscating Chiso's responsibility in the matter. All told, about 15,000 people have applied for recognition as victims, but only 2,265 were ever certified by the government to get the full compensation package. 
The vast majority of these people have since died, though as far as I know there are a few Minamata disease victims left, most of whom were still children when they were poisoned. The Mutual Aid Society is also still around. It now runs a museum and a set of historical archives related to Minamata disease, as well as lobbying for increased regulation and safety standards around mercury contamination. It was one of the foremost organizers of the conferences that led to the Minamata Convention on Mercury being signed in 2017. The convention, well, aims to combat mercury poisoning. It is signed by over 50 countries, including the United States and China, the two largest economies on Earth, as well as Japan. Ultimately, the legacy of Minamata disease, beyond the incredible human trauma it inflicted on a community, which I do not want to minimize here, is a mixed one. On the one hand, the way in which the residents of Minamata were treated with disdain as expendable sacrifices in the name of high growth speaks to the worst side of the bureaucratic vision of post-war Japan. I know I often talk about the post-war era in somewhat glowing terms, and it is true that the economic accomplishments of post-war Japan are pretty incredible in terms of reviving an utterly defeated and broken state. But the single-mindedness with which the goal of economic growth was pursued left a lot of wreckage in its wake. Minamata is one example. On the other hand, Minamata is also, to my mind, a symbol of the triumph of post-war democracy. Perhaps more importantly, one of the major English-language scholars on the subject, Timothy S. George, feels the same way. The initial suppression of the poisoning cases in Minamata was pretty much straight out of the pre-war bureaucratic playbook, but the 1960s revival of demands that Chiso make good on the damage it caused saw that playbook flipped on its head. The Mutual Aid Society was able to mobilize mass protests against Chiso and pursue a successful court case against the company, and outside groups were able to mobilize a lot of sympathy for the anti-Chiso cause. Journalists and media figures were empowered by this public sentiment to be way more forceful in pursuing Chiso's culpability in their coverage. One of George's central points in his work on the subject, Minamata, Pollution and the Struggle for Democracy in Post-War Japan, is that the battle for recognition for Minamata victims was a major turning point for democracy in Japan more generally. Democracy, George says, is not just a series of systems defined by all the stuffs you learn in civics class. Checks and balances, popular sovereignty, representative government, blah 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 blah. At its core, democracy is about the faith people have that the system represents them. It's about people believing that the system can give them justice in a meaningful way. While it's my personal opinion that Chiso got off way too light, the company's victims were able to mobilize and force the system to give them justice. Perhaps I'm trying too hard to put a silver lining on all of this. After all, it's not like the problems that led to the poisoning going unaddressed for so long were magically fixed. But ultimately, I think an overly pessimistic read on the whole situation doesn't give the Minamata residents who fought so hard for so long for recognition enough credit. In the end, they stood up and they demanded justice from their society. And even with all those caveats, in the end, they did still win. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patron Jeff Weinstock and to Alexander Cooper for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, 
or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week, where we're going to talk a little bit about the life of a regent in Heian, Japan.